Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series. I am the host, Federico Taviorio. As you know, the, the purpose of the podcast is to take uh, burning issues of political interest, but to take them out a bit to the daily polemics and to place them within a broader historical and cultural context. And today, I think we have chosen a very burning issue, which is um, the problem of globalism. So meaning deep and advanced forms of international cooperation and integration between states. Uh, now, the, the issue has become very prominent in the political debate of the last few years, as you probably know. Uh, some commentators went as far as arguing that the entire political systems of the West would be reshaped based on this uh, divide, uh, often formulated as open versus closed, replacing the, the left-right divide. So the globalist being, of course, on the side of the open, uh, on the side of international integration, and the other side being represented by the nationalist. So um, I am happy to say that I am not alone in discussing the matter. In fact, I am with a good friend uh, whose book deal precisely with this issue and will be the occasion of our chat. So the book is In Defense of Globalism. And the friend is Talibor Roaj, which I am very happy to welcome uh, on the platform. Federico, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So maybe a few words of introduction of Dalibor. Many of you may have read some of his pieces in all sorts of places, Politico here in Brussels, but also the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal. I think you have a regular uh, column in uh, the American Interest. Yes, where I'm a contributing editor. Yeah. Um, you are a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, one of the foremost conservative think tanks in the United States. Uh, you have had a variety of uh, affiliations in the past with the Legatum Institute, with the Cato Institute, but for us, for probably your most important affiliation yeah. is the fact that you are a research associate at the Wilfred Martin Center Absolutely. for European Studies. I think it may be interesting for our listeners to know a little bit about your background, because I think it's very relevant to our discussion. You started as a very young man as a, a libertarian free market Eurosceptic. I, I think right. you, you don't mind me. Uh, and uh, I think the fall of communism for me was one of the defining moments of my life. And watching the transition unfold in Central Europe, particularly mm. in the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and to see how some countries did so much better than others, prompted in me making um, interest in economics and social science. And when I was around 14 or, 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 or even perhaps less, I stumbled upon the writings of Friedrich von Hayek and Milton right. Friedman. And very quickly, as a high school student, I became this proselytizing evangelical libertarian <laughs> trying to convert everybody to my cause. I must have been really obnoxious as a teenager. Um, and it took you know, several iterations and, and, and a number of occasions to sort of confront my beliefs with reality and, and perhaps moderate them somewhat. I still feel very comfortable being part of the classical liberal conversation. Right. I'm still a card-carrying <clears throat> member of the Montpellerin Society. <laughs> uh, but I think on a number of subjects, I've arrived at different conclusions than many of my classical liberal friends. And I feel that the movement, uh, as it stands today, has moved in a direction that might not be the most fruitful avenue for mm -hmm. inspiring people and building a compelling political platform. And this is indeed, I think, one of the main points of your 
of your book, in fact, of your two books, we are going to discuss particularly in defense of globalism, but you publish a first book, which is a conservative or center-right defense, as you say, of the European Union a couple of years ago, towards an imperfect union. And, and now um, the same logic, you, you brought it to, to the global level. So my, my first question to you, Dalibor, is how do a conservative center-right defense of the European Union and especially of globalism, because this is the topic of the latest book, look like? And how is it different from alternative possible defenses of mm -hmm. such phenomena, liberal, socialist, uh, call it as you wish? I should begin by saying that the two books really are related and they are part of a broad project, um, the aim of which is to push against the resurgence of nationalism on mm. the political right, which many these days see as an integral part of conservatism and of being on the political right. Uh, there are different manifestations of that in Europe, uh, different ones in the United States. Uh, what worries me perhaps the most is the gradual investment into uh, ideas as opposed to just uh, <clears throat> ephemeral political messaging. Mm. Uh, recently, in, in the summer, we saw a conference in D.C. organized by Yoram Hazoni, an Israeli-American political philosopher, uh, which yeah, is national trying, conservatism, right? Yes, which is trying to make a, which was trying to make the case for national conservatism. Mm. Number of prominent speakers. Um, some of them coming from the more conventional Republican right. Others coming. Uh, from the sort of new wave of, of, of intellectuals mm. trying to build a case for, for Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, and, and really uh, my aim with this book in particular is to show that in many ways nationalism is quite alien to important streams of conservative and classical liberal thought and, and is in fact incompatible with, with some of the central tenets of them. Uh, the other aim of this book is is to show uh, that globalism or global governance or whatever you want to call this ecosystem of institutions, organizations, mm. and treaties and forms of collective decision-making uh, is best understood not as some sort of top-down imposition by unaccountable cosmopolitan elites, if you will, but rather as a bottom-up process which is driven by genuine policy challenges. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's being bottom up is not a guarantee of, 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 of good outcomes necessarily. Uh, we know that some institutions work much better than others. Mm. Some have outlived their purpose. Uh, and I think there is a, an overdue conversation about what is to be done with the existing institutional infrastructure. Uh, but that conversation should not be aiming at recreating some uh, sort of nostalgic vision of the past in which uh, sovereign nation states operate with sort of unfettered autonomy mm. um, because that would jeopardize, I think, many of the things people on the political right should care about. Well, I, I should say, of course, that uh, that sort of intellectual and political mission that you said to yourself um, of sort of making the case for an internationalist and even supranational um, uh, center right or, or conservative right is, is very dear to us as well. It's one of our central constraints because, as you know, um, the European People's Party comes precisely yep. from a tradition of international Christian democracy and conservatism. Um, uh, directly uh, following up on this, 
Uh, I propose that we structure our conversation in uh, uh, three parts, picking up points on three different uh, issues, if you agree. Uh, a couple of points on history, mm -hmm. interesting historical points that come out of your book. Uh, a couple of points on theory, so sort of theoretical assumptions yep. that um, under, seem to underpin your your analysis, and then maybe uh, finishing on a couple of practical implications uh, for the EU and um, and globally. So let's start with history. I think one of the uh, aspects of the book that I found most interesting and, and innovating, but I think it will not be surprising for some of the listeners of our podcast, because we have made the same argument in previous episodes of the podcast, is your historical take on globalism. You have a whole chapter, in fact, insisting on how the European project is not a radical break with the past. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in many ways, it was the, the age of nationalism that was a radical break uh, with the past. So you sort of reverse the argument of uh, many conservative, your national conservative for right. which... I mean, the, the, the idea is really to push against this notion that the nation state is somehow a basic primitive fact of human history mm -hmm. or that it represents in some ways an endpoint to history. Um, and it's an argument which has been made, among others, by Yoram Hazoni um, right. in his More, book, The Virtue of yeah. Nationalism, where he really treats nations as organic Even going back to biblical texts in this case. The Freeze Nation is sort of organic extensions of previously existing uh, bonds of kinship and 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 and, and, and tribe tribe bonds and, and and essentially of extended families. Um, and, and in this perspective, uh, I mean nations have no alternative because it's sort of naturally grown uh, institution that 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 cannot be really reshaped at will. Uh, but it's a deeply ahistorical view of the mm -hmm. nation. We know, for example, um, that for, for 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 nations to to exist as extensions of previously existing extended families, you would have to have those extended families in the in 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 place in the first place. Uh, Hazoni's argument runs into what is known among historians as the European marriage pattern, which asserted itself in the early modern period, especially in the north. So he uses England and, and the Low Countries as examples of modern mm. nations. Yet in those two places in Europe, uh, you had uh, this transition happening demographically in which people would opt for smaller nuclear families that were more independent of each other. So, so it, you know, that really runs against the logic of, 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 of the argument. And we know, just you know, don't have to be a historian to, to, to see that modern European nations were very often results of explicit political projects aimed at homogenization of certain right. territory. It's this sort of <clears throat> famous quote from one of the founding fathers of Italy about how we've created Italy and now we have to create yeah, Italy. Zellia, right? And, Massimo uh, Zellia. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, and uh, you know, 100 years later, there still are uh, regional identities, right? And in many places, <clears throat> these identities are sources of great political tensions, uh, raising questions about you know whether the country we find ourselves in can be sustained over mm. over 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 a longer period of time. Uh, so, you know, the, the the idea is not to dismiss nations as. Uh, as social constructs that can be reshaped at will, arbitrarily or, or discarded. Uh, I think there is a mistake that... But to people, open them up in a way. To, that, that to, Benedict Anderson makes right. uh, and, 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 and others. But, but I think it's, it's, it, 
it's equally wrong to to see them as sort of like immutable givens of history either. Mm. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on what you see as examples of um, the supranational history or the, the internationalist or globalist history of the West preceding the European Union? In the book, I discuss a number of different examples. Uh, perhaps the most salient of them is the Holy Roman Empire, which was an entity that existed for over a thousand years uh, in large part of Europe, particularly German-speaking, Central Europe, uh, which combined a high degree of effective political decentralization. It involved hundreds of different uh, kingdoms mm-hmm. and, and, and various other political units and free cities, etc., etc., uh, with some overarching political structure, which was aimed at providing common defense and security, some common voice on, 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 on sort of external matters. Uh, it was an entity that to its contemporaries came across as something very bizarre, mm-hmm. um, I think it was Samuel von Puffendorf who called it a misshapen monster. Yeah. Uh, yet, I think it's telling that this entity existed for a thousand years. So, so there must have been something to it, right? mm-hmm. something that made it uh, attuned to the European condition. And, uh, and, 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 and so, you know, in, in, in that it's sense... Interesting. So, sorry to interrupt you. It's interesting that actually the quote Puffendorf was um, uh, using the paradigm of Baudin. So the paradigm of Jean Baudin yep. and the modern thinking about sovereignty and absolute monarchy. So it could not understand the peculiarity of the early Roman Empire as um, a realm in which no one was sovereign, which in many ways anticipated yep. uh, current reflections on federalism. Federalism playing also an important role, I think, in your in your analysis. It, it, it does. Um, and so the Holy Roman Empire is one example among many. <clears throat> Some of them involve explicit sort of formal political projects like you know the Hanseatic League was was, was a mm. union of, of cities doing trade on, on the Baltic uh, on the Baltic coast but you also had the gold standard which uh, really like without anybody being in charge involved a fairly tight coordination of monetary policy mm. within the con- constraints uh, provided by by the convertibility to gold I'm not saying that these things from the past should or could be recreated or that we should like slavishly follow those examples uh, but their recurrence in history I think there's mm. something about what to expect in the future and, and also I think provide uh, sort of insight into the political institutions that yeah. currently exist. I guess the point is there is a long history of internationalism or supranationalism or globalism in the West let's call it uh, as we wish and in fact um, I made a very similar argument in a previous episode of the podcast in, uh, entitled The European Project Leap Forward or Restoration, in which I argued precisely with some of these yeah. arguments that there are no, many I, restorative I, 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 I have, you know, I've followed your work for a long time and imitation is the highest form of flattery. <laughs> so, so there you go. Okay, so uh, a second maybe issue that there's an historical sort of salience, part of your... Uh, attempt, as we were saying, is to reconstruct a tradition of international mm-hmm. conservatism that is alternative to the current national yep. conservatism that is emerging that, that, that as this sort of tribalist uh, instincts. Um, yet I, I was stricken to, um, to notice that most of the people you quote, people that I also consider part of my own political tradition, but uh, they are usually considered uh, liberal or neoliberal thinkers, mm-hmm. Mises, Hayek, uh, uh, the Austrians, uh, um, even Röpke. Röpke is a bit more complicated. So are there Christian democratic figures or thinkers or conservative uh, figures or thinkers that you would uh, place in this tradition? 
Absolutely. I tried, um, first of all, to write about things that I know best. And I was brought up reading the classical liberals and, and people associated with the Lippmann Colloquium and, mm. and the early years of the Mont Pelerin Society. So, so it came to me naturally to, uh, to emphasize their contributions and, and the internationalist dimension of, of their own thinking, which also shaped, to some degree, the European project uh, and also uh, and many of the other international institutions that we have today. Uh, but I mean, you know better than me about the personalist tradition right. in the Catholic social thought. Uh, there are scholars out there. Um, I was at Furman University recently with Brent Nielsen, who is an expert sure. on uh, the intellectual history of the European project and its overlap with uh, with uh, so various theological traditions and and how sort of various sort of streams of theological thinking have sort of shaped people's attitudes towards towards Europe. Uh, it's it's just something I can claim no particular expertise in. Uh, well, I'm sure you uh, have a task ahead of you to enlighten uh, <laughs> your fellow friends on 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 the Christian right about. Uh, about the merits of arguments advanced by people like uh, Rougemont or, or Mounier Indeed, and, yeah. and many others. Actually, uh, one of your predecessors on the podcast was Marco Duranti. I don't know whether you know his book on the conservative human rights revolution, which yep. goes a bit in the direction of showing how even the European Convention of Human Rights, in fact, as conservative roots, is rooted in a certain historical memory of pre-modern form of supranationalism. And he, he makes the point there that um, the supranational jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights in the mind of many of these conservatives was modeled after the supranational jurisdiction of the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. So um, I propose that we move to a couple of theoretical points mm -hmm. underpinning the book, which I think it, it is interesting to tease out in this uh, context. Um, the first is, I would call it about a certain neoconservative um, sort of flavor. I don't think that you take a stance saying, ever saying in the book that you are a neoconservative. Maybe you don't consider yourself a neoconservative, but even your definition of globalism, I, I think you say that for you, globalism is a form of deep um, uh, international cooperation and integration between free societies. Mm -hmm. So you sort of exclude non-free uh, societies. And my, my question to you, uh, on the one hand, I mean, to, to what extent is this compatible with the specific sort of conservative form of globalism that you want to defend, which is a globalism of polycentric governance, of trials mm -hmm. and error, of diversity, of institutional diversity, isn't ultimately the fact that at the global stage, different cultures that develop different sets of yep. institutions, also uh, something that a conservative globalist approach should accept and should integrate? Um, so I try to draw on the thinking of people like Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom right. on, on polycentricity. Um, Maybe you can explain that a bit because I'm not Eleanor sure was the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize in economics for her work that involved uh, a lot of case studies and field research of bottom-up governance arrangements, particularly in small communities. She wrote a lot about... Um, governance and public services provision in uh, metropolitan areas in the United States, where she found out that actually decentralized, overlapping and seemingly messy systems mm. performed better than ones that were sort of consolidated and run by experts. Um, and she also uh, found that uh, it is perfectly possible for, for small communities in various contexts to develop institutions that are durable and stable and solve 
various problems of strategic interaction, if you, if you will. Her husband was a scholar of American federalism, and he also sort of borrowed from that sort of polycentristic tradition to think about uh, self-governance from a sort of conservative-ish, if you will, uh, American standpoint, conservative-ish mm-hmm. in the sense of trying to conserve the basic principles of, of, of America's founding. Um, it was actually he who, um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, wrote a book about the meaning of American federalism, mm. in which he argued Great book uh, that uh, the world, the biggest challenge internationally was that the world could not remain half free and half in servitude. Mm. He was making this sharp <clears throat> distinction between uh, free and unfree societies and how each constituted a threat to each other himself. So it, this is something that I don't necessarily borrow from uh, from from my friends on the neoconservative right, right, from my you know say my AI colleagues, but but rather from 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 Vincent Ostrom and also with with Eleanor herself. Um, it is true that she emphasizes the importance of of diversity and and versus of sort of discovering best practices through trial and error. Uh, but there is also a set of design principles that sort of hmm. emerges from 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 her from her from her, from her empirical work. You know, I'm not sure whether those are immutable principles for, mm. for designing new institutions, but we sort of know as you know, social scientists that institutions do matter. Mm. And we have some basic idea of, of how they shape people's intent, incentives, whether domestically or internationally. It is not an ideological tenet, for example, to claim uh, that democracies are less likely to fight each other than mm. autocracies are. And I think that that basic fact... Uh, uh, I'm not sure if it if it makes one one a neoconservative, but it certainly uh, it certainly should shape one's thinking about international institutions, about how they're likely to operate when they're run, say, by free societies, as opposed mm. when they're run by countries like Russia or China. Right, and maybe when when we discussed uh, the practical implications of your argument, we may refer to some examples of unfree society that are playing the globalist game and with which we, we have to engage and how within your framework we can engage with them. Sure. Before we go into, into that, staying on the uh, theoretical sort of underpinnings of your work, um, I have a question on um, uh, sort of political realism, which mm-hmm. is one of the main uh, objects of attack in, in the book, I would say. Yeah. Um, my impression is that your view, you have a very, you are criticizing the very crude realism of mm-hmm. people like Stephen Walls, sort of structural yeah, realist yeah. for which uh, the international society is a Obesian society uh, of war in which everyone is at war with everyone else to promote its own uh, national mm-hmm. interest. So it's a narrow definition of um, realism. But there is another, an alternative tradition of political realism which is, I would say, the classical sort of yep. mainstream tradition going from uh, Metternich at the Congress of Vienna to Henry Kissinger um, in in our century, which on the contrary, as it seems to me, a very, um, a lot of attention to cultural diversity and the way this cultural diversity shapes institution and has to be integrated creatively and respectfully into forms of international uh, governance. So I, I would almost, reading your book, I almost had the impression that in fact, the the classical realist tradition is a much better tradition than uh, sort of neoconservative prescriptive idea of how each society at the international level should be to to inform a conservative globalism. So I push back against what you call structural realism or, or neorealism, yeah. the sort of crude view of international politics as as uh, as 
you know, the survival of the fittest and might is right and, and no mm. rules of the game can ever change <clears throat> the behavior of actors because that strikes me as uh, as wrong both analytically and also prescriptively. Mm. Um, it's a tradition that, by the way, has been of, for a long time associated with the libertarian right. Mm. Um, from my times at the Cato Institute, um, I can't tell you how many times we've seen people like John Mearsheimer and others okay. coming through the building and, and opining on, on foreign policy with always the same conclusion, which is to say that <clears> the US <throat> should not get involved in anything ever or, or, or try to, to achieve anything. And uh, over the recent years with the election of President Trump, I think that tradition has gained currency. I think mm. in some ways it reflects uh, the intuitions of the president and it's also attuned with the public that's increasingly wary of, 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 of what some would call America's foreign entanglements. And so I think it's it's worthwhile to push against that tradition. That other tradition of realism that, that you mentioned, uh, I mean, it's, you know, I was, I, was, I, was, I was brought up as an economist primarily, so again, I can't claim much expertise in, in the area of sort of history of, 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 of sort of ideas in, in, in international relations, but but on, on, on at least on surface, it strikes me that that tradition can be reconciled with much mm. of what I say in the book. I think so uh, as well. Insofar as people working in the tradition recognize the importance of institutions and recognize that uh, rules of the game domestically and internationally mm. actually shape outcomes. Not only they recognize, I think, the importance of institutions, but they recognize the importance of culture in shaping institutions, because I think this is often a blind spot of the liberal view of institutions, which is they, they set incentives, but they are sort of disembodied entities. Well, in this tradition, they are, they are rooted entities. They come from somewhere. They, they embody a certain worldview. Sure. I mean, culture and institutions is, is a massive sure. sort of body of, of sort of work and research where it's very hard to sort of point the to the direction of causality and yeah. uh, and I'm not sure we want to take our listeners no, we to the we weeds of, 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 of various identification problems <laughs> it involves. In fact, we, we have been discussing, I think, history and theory enough. Now for the final part of the podcast, I'd like to maybe focus on um, what does it mean practically for uh, political discussions mm -hmm. that we are having in Europe and worldwide. So let me start with uh, Europe. Um, what what do your arguments mean for the European Union? I mean, is the European Union um, uh, does does it embody a sort of uh, conservative idea of globalism, promoting polycentrism, uh, respecting diversity based on trial and error, or uh, does it instead displays more centralist tendencies? And if if the latter, what should be the center right approach uh, towards it in your opinion? I think there is a. Um there's a sort of twofold tendency on in, in various corners of the political spectrum, which and and, and that, that sort of twofold tendency is both mistaken. One, one of those two tendencies is, is to sort of try to claim the European project as, as our own. Mm. So so if you are a Christian Democrat to, to treat it as a fundamentally Christian Democratic project, if you're on the left to treat it as a fundamentally progressive project, um, and then there is there is a reverse attitude. Uh, especially when you sort of if you're losing the conversation, then you'll try to see the EU as some sort of nefarious plot by the other side. Right. Right? So my friends on the political left see this as some sort of neoliberal imposition that uh, forces like austerity upon hapless nations. Mm. And our Tory friends um, 
you know, see it as a bureaucratic monster sort of cooked up by, by, by French socialists. The reality is uh, that the EU, as it evolved over time, has always been an uneasy, messy compromise of these various uh, streams of thought and also national interests. And, and it took many iterations and, and to, to sort of arrive at each of these sort of progressive settlements we've, we've had with, with various treaties. So, so my easy answer, my sort of quick and easy answer to your, to your question is that it's really neither. It's sort of sitting somewhere in the middle, uh, sharing the sort of dysfunctions and flaws of these various intellectual traditions. Um, and maybe that's what makes it so similar to the Holy Roman Empire, which, mm. which also was sort of messy and, and, and seemingly dysfunctional, uh, yet also resilient and, and, and very long-lived. Mm. One, one thing that uh, seems to also connect the Holy Roman Empire and the European Union um, is the importance that a certain notion of subsidiarity mm -hmm. played in both. Um, of course, in, in the time of the Holy Roman Empire, this was not called uh, as such. The word was developed afterwards. Uh, but uh, this plays a, an important part, I think. It's an important principle in your understanding of uh, globalism. Maybe you could elaborate on that and maybe you could say something about how to operationalize subsidiarity because I, I work a lot. I mean, the Martin mm -hmm. Center works a lot on this as well. Uh, but what I find it difficult is to move from um, a, a neatly theorized principle yep. to yep. practical recommendations. No, I think that's the challenge. Um, and I'm not sure... I or, or anybody else has a, has, a, has a good answer to that challenge. Subsidiarity involves thinking about the various tasks we want to associate with different mm. levels of government and mm. we want to make sure that the, the, the levels of government further away from, from the citizen do only those tasks that can be ad adequately dealt with by, by, by those sort of layers of governance that are closer to, 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 to individuals and, and communities. And uh, that's as much a matter of political judgment as it is a matter of sort of technical expertise. Like we can like look at the externalities and mm. and the degree uh, of, of sort of preference alignment is an exercise that economists like Alberto Alessina have been involved in. And that can give us some guidance. I think the EU sort of departs from subsidiarity understood in those terms quite significantly. Mm. And I think meaningful <clears throat> reforms could be introduced by 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 pushing it closer to that to the subsidiarity ideal. Uh, so I see it as a useful intellectual tool, but not necessarily as an effective sort of legal constraint mm. or constitutional constraint on, say, the growth of the central government or or or, or sort of guiding guiding policies. Subsidiarity has been embedded in European treaties, uh, yet it, as we know, provides only a weak check on on, mm. on, on policy making. Yes, I also think so. I would like to zoom out for a moment from Europe to the mm -hmm. world and maybe discuss, it's my last uh, question, unfortunately, we don't have um, a huge amount of time. We are witnessing the rise to an extent of a globalism without free societies. Uh, and that's uh, the Belt and Road Initiative mm -hmm. of China, which has a globalist dimension in it. It builds uh, yep. upon proclamations of support for the in international integration. But of course, China itself is not a free society and many of the, um, the societies that it is trying to connect are not free society. And of course, this brings us back to how your sort of conservative understanding of globalism can integrate um, institutional diversity 
um, worldwide. So, how do you? Would so, you so the intuition that, that is <clears throat> implicit in the in the book is that we should be wary of the efforts by unfree societies <clears throat> to export unfreedom elsewhere. Mm. And I think Belt and Road Initiative might have led to some worthwhile investment in poor countries, but it has always come with strings attached. And and especially as it reaches Europe, I think European countries should think very carefully about. Um, about sort of you know joining forces with the Chinese so-called private sector. Um, you know I'm not saying we should try to cut China off global value chains or resort to protectionism or sanctions or sort of muscular attitude towards towards China, but we should simply be very careful and and just realize that uh, these are not companies like you know, U.S. companies or Canadian companies or Australian companies, that the sort of dividing line mm. between the private sector and the government is paper thin in China. Um, and that the investment, you see it in Central Europe, I think very, very clearly that the investment is driven by political motives, is driven uh, by an effort to project power, to to sort of shape the incentives of the political class. And, and I think that's something that we should be just cognizant of and, and 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 sort of develop our immune systems against. Indeed, I see what you mean. Um, before we move to the conclusions, Dalibor, is there anything you would like to add about the book um, that it is important for listeners to know? I think there is a sort of Pinkerian theme to this effort, uh, referring to, to Steven Pinker, who documented the decline of violence, as of human progress mm-hmm. that has been achieved in, 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 in recent past. And, and to me, that progress uh, is a sort of small p progress. I'm not sort of making you know, any grand claims about the direction of history. Uh, but but that, that sort of progress has been due to a specific set of institutional factors, the most important of which arguably has been uh, the international settlement, if you will, created by the United States under U.S. leadership after the end of the Second World War. Uh, and it has brought us more prosperity, more peace, more self-governance around the world. Uh, and yes, the world has changed. Um, Europe today is nothing like Europe in 1945. Um, and I think the voices for calling for, for, for an updating of the system and its reform are, are often justified. Uh, but it always was one of the central instincts of, 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 of the conservative movement to, to operate with prudence while making changes to mm. systems that broadly speaking work. And and my fear in this populist age is that many of my friends on the conservative right are losing that sense of prudence and 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 and, and, and humility. And I would like to see more of it as we go forward. They should uh, prefer the tried to the untried, as Michael Lockshot famously exactly. said in his definition of conservatism. So thank you very much, Dalibor. Thank you, Federico. Uh, very briefly, a couple of points of conclusion, and feel free to interject if you disagree with them. Uh, I think one of the first, the first takeaway that I would emphasize is that there is, in fact, a long tradition of international uh, conservatism and classical liberalism that center-right people who wants to defend international integration and European integration can tap on. It's it's a very rich tradition. Uh, you quoted some of the authors, Mises, Hayek, uh, uh, the Ostroms, but we could quote the Christian Democratic mm-hmm. Founding Fathers of Europe, the Gasperi, Adenauer, uh, Schumann, and others. Uh, second point is that 
there are different, it is implied in the first point, there are um, different ways of defending globalism and progressive ways are not necessarily the same as conservative ways. Uh, my own understanding is that progressive ways tend to be much more top-down, messianic in their inspiration and uh, culturally ruthless. While um, conservative globalism, if I may add a bit on, build on your argument, is bottom-up, evolutionary, and respectful of cultural diversity. And of course, for us on the center-right, it will be important to articulate these principles into practical proposals for reform and for change. So uh, really a warm uh, thank you to Dalibor for being with us. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.